You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the final installment in our Too Old to Die Young miniseries, featuring passion plays, pure sadism, multiple dance scenes, come eating, motel massacres, mommy roleplay, pegging, cartel TV, pedophile trailer parks, and the high priestess of death. Martin. Yes. Democracy is my bitch. Democracy is my bitch. Fake news. Fake news. Fake news. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you happy that there's no more refing to watch? Yeah, we made it. I know. Like, I can't believe we actually pulled this one off. We marathoned through this entire just magnum opus that he put together for Amazon, and then we included for this episode a movie that you loathed and may have turned around on at least a little bit, The Neon Demon, which yeah. he also made for Amazon. Yeah, the 38-hour epic of Too Old to Die Young. We keep getting longer. (laughs) The four-year-long. The (laughs) week-long run of 12-hour installments. (laughs) No, but it it is pretty amazing to now have ingested this three times, in my case, because each time I find it to be a little more rewarding, I pick something out of it. Um, while also, again, we've said this multiple times throughout our own magnum opus of, of breaking this this uh, series, long film, whatever you want to call it, streaming cinema down, um, is that it exists at all. 
Like, it's just, you can't believe that Amazon let him do it. And then the fact that Neon Demon he had made before for them, because that movie is a little more accessible that we're, we'll kind of go into as we, we dive in and do a whole segment on that, is that I wonder if Neon Demon was the one that he turned in and was like, oh, okay, and Amazon's like, yeah, we like this. Like, here, here's the money to do Too Old to Die Young. And he's like, yes, now I can do whatever the fuck I want. And he does. Yeah, it's um, constantly reminded watching the series. I can't believe this was done. And with some of the brutal sexual scenes in these... Fu- you know, ultimate episodes. I can't believe it's on a streaming service. I genuinely like some of the stuff with Jesus and Yuritza is genuinely like, holy shit. This was on Amazon prime. It borders on pornography. It, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's really gnarly. It's NC 17 level like fetish. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, no, you, you could not get this into a, like a regal, no. you know, without an NC 17 rating because, like if Showgirls got an NC seventeen, this feels like it would be banned in like Iowa. Yeah, I mean it's it's really it takes it kind of around around the bend, no pun intended. But you know it's you know I think having seen the whole thing now, um, it does come I think to a satisfying conclusion for me where it really kind of I wouldn't say ties things up narratively, but ties things up thematically. Where I kind of, okay, I see you stuck your landing. And like we talked about, like the final episode, it's basically, here's my thesis. Like, I'm going to tell you what this has all been about. You know, okay, early episodes, a lot of drone core, like, you know, me watching this, what am I doing here? And I still like think you can speed things up, you know, lose, <laughs> you know, that, that it asks a lot of the viewer. But like it thematically, like you're okay, it all fits when you get to that final episode, I think. Well, and especially because the final episode is 30 minutes long. That's the fascinating thing about it is that, you know, eight is about another 90 minute, Mm -hmm. like full feature length film that is almost nothing but sadism and torture and violence and people getting just completely executed. But then he does something incredibly weird in that nine is almost like he smuggles in all of the raw kinky fetishistic sexuality that it it feels like the the series has been building towards and hinting at uh but he does that after these major narrative turns and that's the one that like pacing wise for me is the strangest because it's like you reach this crescendo of violence and then his cool down is almost like, now I'm going to make you sit through a lot of uncomfortable sex for an hour and 10 minutes. And then the the final volume, uh, The World, is 30 minutes that are basically like, and in summation, this is what Too Old to Die Young means. And you're like, what the fuck did you just make me do, man? It's it's really It's really strange because, again, when you talk about the pacing and the way that most TV shows are shaped, like the finale is the finale. You know, you think about like stranger things just, just came out. Right. And it builds up to the final battle. If you want to have a sense of like completion and this, and this one felt like the the one I would push back against is like some of the series, like game of Thrones was infamous for this is that the penultimate right episodes of every semen, uh, semen (laughs) it's Freudian slip. There was the Uh, big battle. The final was, was well, it was like the big, like Ned Stark getting executed in season one. 
you know, yeah. in the, the penultimate episode. I remember even watching that being somebody who'd never read the books and being like, what the fuck you killed Sean Bean? Yeah. But then you have a whole other hour after that that is almost like the transitional episode that gets that sets up where season two or whatever subsequent season is coming next is going to go. Okay. So like yeah. he he is it almost feels like him using that structure of being like, here's your big, almost like narrative peak. And then this is like what happens after that, what the consequences are, because the one thing Refn is fascinated by are the consequences of violence. And that's kind of what a big chunk of this show is about on how all this shit that these people have done, it's going to follow them until they're finally wiped off the earth because of it. Yeah, and I, you're right. That's a good pushback that you have. You have that kind of big scene, big big episode followed by the kind of come down. But I would also say there are still a lot of shows that do the finale is the oh big, the finale is the, the huge thing is the like, huge yeah. thing. Or but like even okay, even if you want to go with the Game of Thrones idea, like you're at least setting up the next season. Like this one, there is a sense of like what's coming next, but it doesn't feel it's so short too. It feels almost like very perverse just from a narrative standpoint of like, I'm going to give you 31 minutes as a, it's like a coda. It's 100% a coda. You it's know, the best word to apply to it. It's just like, here's or an epilogue. Yeah. Yeah. Complete, complete epilogue. And you know, we'll get to this when we talk about specific episodes, but there is this sense with this show of by the end of episode nine, most of the players have been cleared off the board, you know, in one way or another. And, and you have your two people left standing, these two women in the world, episode 10, of, like, they're left after this, like, this fire of violence that's, like, that run across all of L.A. and Mexico. And now what's left? And it's, like, it ain't over. It has this sense of ominous, like, just foreboding. Um, but you get a sense, okay, this isn't long enough for me to have these two paths really cross between Diana and Yoritza. Well, and the other thing to also keep in mind is that we are basing a lot of our comparisons and analysis for this series or show or whatever we want to call it on American television. And like Refn is pulling not only from exploitation filmmaking, but I mean, like in my head, one of the closest comparisons I have is like Rainer Werner Fassbender doing like Berlin Alexander Platz or World on a Wire yeah. or even like. Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, like the long TV cut of that to where that those had huge chunky epilogues at the end too. So I wonder if like that influence is playing in his head as well, because like too old to die young is like the hodgepodge of everything that he's ever liked just jammed into 26 hours of streaming content. It also, that's a really good point. It also is similar somewhat to British television where they do series, no, not, exactly. not yeah, seasons, yeah. where it's like, they don't even, they, they don't make things to say, we've, we're going to have another season. It might end. It's so a it's, contained story. Yeah, it's always like, okay, like Luther may, you know, with the Eater's Elbow show, he may come back, but three years later. Right. Because these people go off and do their own stuff and they come back. And, you know, I think that watching this show, though, you, you asked before we recorded, like, is did, you, did I think possibly that... Refn had an inkling that there would be a second season, but again, I don't think he thinks of this as normal TV. And no. I, and I think that I don't know what. No, I think if they said, "Hey, we want you to do another one," he'd be like, "Are you fucking serious?" Okay, Amazon, but or maybe not. He might have said, "I want to do something else." I don't know because all of the behind the scenes stories that I've been told by, I've either read or been told by some people who worked on it, 
are like, it was a nightmare from like shooting it <laughs> to post production. I'm so surprised. And how long it took and like just how it even like drove like Reffin sort of crazy. I mean, he hasn't made anything since then. And it's not because this was some like, it was not, let's say, a success by any measurable metric, but it's like, it's not like Reffin could have not gotten something made a year later with like some small independent like financier like he could make a Nick Reffin movie tomorrow if if he wanted oh yeah you know with Neon or XYZ or some of these no exactly like yeah yeah. but I mean like hell if Verhoeven is making lesbian nun movies in France like I'm pretty sure Nick Reffin can get like a little bit of money to shoot like Drive 2 or whatever the fuck so it's like I don't think that this stalled his career at all because he does have Copenhagen Cowboy coming I believe for Netflix is his next project and he even had we we talked about uh, he was working on Maniac Cop for HBO for a long time that Neon to bring them up they were behind that as well Mm. Um, so I mean the one thing I do wonder is that if he just was exhausted after it and was like I I need a break. Like this was years of my life that I tortured myself over, over that maybe like he needed to reset or recharge. And also for all of the shit and we talk and like jokes we make about this, like, again, this is like so singular and like, so the work of one artist and all of his obsession that he might not have had anything left after that. He was like, I left that off. It's like a, you know, a great NBA player just leaving it all out on the floor. And he's like, I, you know, I need the off season now to like recharge and come up with something else. We brought this up earlier in the, in this little mini series, but like this thing is new Hollywood as fuck in terms of the storytelling, but also like the behind the scenes, like when like he infiltrated the system, you know, like he hijacked this new medium to just remold it in his image. It's the most, even if you hate it, it's the most remarkable aspect of it is the thing that we keep saying is like, how did this ever get made? It's like a guy was like, he saw the opportunity and I do think it is curious that Reffin doesn't seem to have any intention of going back to putting a movie in theaters. Like Neon Demon played in theaters just because it came out in that early, those early Amazon days where they were making stuff like Chirac and everything where they were putting them in like a handful of art theaters and draft houses. Yeah, exactly. Manchester is probably the biggest one just because the awards push behind it. But it was like, you got some of that, but mostly it was just for Amazon's like upcoming prime platform that they were trying to fill with content. But like, I don't think Reffin has any interest in making movies for theaters now because I feel like he found this weird niche to where it's like, well, if HBO will give me money to make fucking a 10-hour Maniac Cop with John Hyams or like Netflix will give me this something to do this weird experimental. I don't know if it's a movie or a series, but I believe he, he shot it again overseas. He already and shot he, it? I believe it's finished. Okay. Um, but like if they're going to give me money to make this weird experimental European thing, like I, I just... I don't think a guy who's this idiosyncratic and like really a like kind of possessed to do his thing is ever going to go back. Like you're never going to get like he, 
Like, if we get a sequel to Top Gun Maverick, like, it's not going to be like, and Nick Reffin's going to make Top Gun Maverick 2, or, like, he's going to make, like, the next Marvel thing or DC thing, because I also know that those movies have been offered him. Like, he was, he flirted with making a James Bond movie at one point, but it's like, I just don't think he's interested in that. I think he's found, like, this new frontier that he can be a pioneer on and be like, well, they'll let me get as weird as the budget allows. And as long as I, I basically turn in content, they don't fucking care. Yeah. It's, I'd almost, I'd almost say, you know, the, if I ever make a, a documentary at the making, it's like art in the time of content, art in the era of content, right? That right. here's this guy who saw, like you said, an opportunity where, especially early in the streaming days of Amazon, but that was also when Netflix was starting to do its first big movies. Right. You know, they already had TV, but they were kind of really branching into now they're doing these fucking like, like the Lord gray, of the Rings. Well, the, the gray man is $200 million movie comes out this weekend. The yeah. Cause that's Netflix, right? Netflix and the Amazon, that like Lord of the Rings. Did it cost that much? $200 million. Jesus. Yeah. Um, that's, that's I, the Russo brothers, right? Yeah. Supposedly it is as mediocre as you would expect. Um, and I don't know, Two things. I don't know if Reffin would want to go back, based on what you told me, and do you know a series like this at least soon. I don't think they'd let him. I think there's a line. Even I think that the Wild West is now kind of gone. Like he hit at the r- perfect time. We've talked about yeah that Amazon didn't quite get the game yet, and now Netflix is like even though they're just they're bleeding money on a daily basis. I was reading this article. Their whole thing now is we're trying to pretend like we're a big movie studio. At all costs. So like movies like The Gray Man are pretending to be a theatrical blockbuster. But in the end, they're not. Um, Well, and they're also, I've read, especially in the wake of that huge kind of memorandum about um, Netflix moving away from quote unquote vanity projects and like working with the bigger auteurs like the Alfonso Cuarons or the Scorsese's of the world. Like they're going to go to like Apple now, you know, like they're making these movies that are going to be like their equivalents of blockbusters. But now I wonder if post Top Gun Maverick, I wonder if that movie bringing movies back to the theaters and crossing the billion dollar like mark at the box office. If like, I remember back in the day when Netflix was, was still, I don't want to say young, but they were really throwing their weight around and making features and stuff. And that like, they were not easy to negotiate with, particularly when it came to like film programmers, like if they wanted to get like one of their films, like the apostle played uh, at fantastic, yes, I remember. Fest, you know, uh, Gareth Evans movie. And like <clears throat> the one thing that I've always been told about them is that like, they weren't going to budge. Like it was like, you can have the movie, but you play it at this time and this time. And it's never going to a theater again. Like, we don't care. It's for our platform. You're just count yourself as lucky that this is even playing at your, in your like small little art house for your little gathering. Dolomite was the same way. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Dolomite was very close. Um, But now I wonder with theaters returning and the paradigm having been shifted so hard and now it it kind of, I don't want to say shifting back because I think we've lost what we knew 
as the theatrical experience forever since COVID. But I do wonder if with Netflix's new kind of philosophical shift, if they start putting stuff like the gray man in theaters. It is. That's what I mean. Yeah, like, yeah, I right, think yeah. if you're going to see more and more of that is that that's going to be part of their to try and like plug those holes in their dam uh, that they're leaking money through is like, they're going to start putting these huge blockbusters in theaters and even making them to try and be like a top gun Maverick and make a billion dollar picture while also putting out these like middle of the road, budgetary like movies like uh spider wick. Um, yeah. was it spider head, spider head, spider head, like which again, made by Joseph Kaczynski, but, like, I wonder if that's the stuff that's going to go straight to the platform to where, like, the gray men of the world and, and everything are going to actually go into theaters. Yeah, and I don't want to get, you know, I don't take us too far topic, but it is interesting. Um, I, I, with great hope, hope that the streaming bubble's bursting, you know, and I think especially Netflix being is really starting to bleed. And like you said, we're we're getting we're getting. I think hit. you're starting to see the limits. The, yeah, the, where it's it's this is it's how far really you can go. stretched as thin as possible because I, and, and I don't think that this is wholly off topic because of of uh, too old to die young kind of having been one of the the first like pioneers of this this kind of new frontier is that like you know beyond even the movies that we mentioned like right now one of the big crises out there in entertainment is that like Disney plus the sort of lukewarm reception that a lot of their content gets now to where it's like, it's almost like a lot of people are watching this stuff out of obligation is like the overall consensus around like Obi-Wan was like, Oh, this is fine, I guess. And then like half of the Marvel series are just things that people kind of watch like while they're folding laundry or on their, uh-huh. their screen, like scrolling through Twitter. And then they'll be like, Oh, this is like WandaVision is a great example of this, of like they had all of their kind of genre bending boundary pushing and formal, like formally interesting stuff that they're doing in that show. But at the end of the day, it just shifted into being the next Marvel thing and then ended up, like setting up Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, which to their credit, Multiverse of Madness is one of the biggest movies of the year, like box office. One of the worst too, but nobody (laughs) fucking gives a shit about it. So it's, you're starting to see, even though the numbers are still there, you're, you're getting the law of diminishing returns in in effect to where like, nobody thinks about these movies. Like the, the thing that people criticized Netflix for, for years about like their movies or their series come out for like a weekend, people talk about it and then they kind of vanish from like the pop culture vernacular entirely, unless they're like a squid game, you know, like that takes over stranger Um, things is another example. Stranger things is like one of their only like big, like blockbusters that actually grabs uh, like the, the zeitgeist by the throat a little bit. But, like, I think you're seeing that effect actually occur on the Disney Plus stuff because, and even, like, the blockbuster stuff because, I mean, look at Thor Love and Thunder right now, which is probably getting the worst reviews, well, outside of Eternals. But, like, the big it's question with, like, the, 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 because we're on phase four now. Yeah, phase four. Um, like, that's been the huge question where, like, even if you listen to, podcasts that cover all this stuff religiously led by people who like love this stuff. They're like the dyed in the wool, like super fans of all the MCU and 
like comic book and Disney Plus shit is they're even being like, what what are we doing here? Like, what are we building towards? Like, I even like my interest in it is starting to wane because like there's no overall and you're one of these folks yeah, too. I was. Like, you yeah. love this stuff. I I'm I'm you know have learned to ignore it and just do my own thing. But it's kind of like you're experiencing this too, right? Because it's like you're going, what's the point here? Or have we finally reached like true fatigue when it comes to this sort of content? I don't want to get too hyperbolic here, but I think... Because you saw Love and Thunder last night, I saw Love and Thunder is the Donald Trump of the MCU. It is. So what I mean by that is, you know, Trump was the culmination of all like Reaganomics, right? That when like Reagan started this move where everyone and the Republicans were like, this is fucking great. We are marching towards awesomeness, right? We're winning, we're winning. And it builds this ugly fucking thing where the pimple pops and it all just spills out everywhere, right? This is Marvel saying, we can't lose, we're printing money. And Taika, it was a perfect person to bring it all down because, you know, you bring it to Ragnarok where it's like, they're like, oh, wow, like people really like us pushing this comedy boundary. We can let them do whatever he wants. But, but then but if by Thor, uh, Love and Thunder, they completely take his shackles off. And they're like, oh, we can't lose. Like, we can't lose. And you watch this movie, it is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in the theater. Like, it's it's a Really? It's really bad. Um, I just have, I have a tough time listening to anybody tell me that it's one of the worst movies they've ever seen. Well, it's not Morbius. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, with the amount of resources that they have, and like, Taika Waititi, he's not my cup of tea. Although I do like, you know, like, Hunt for the Wilderness. I love that movie. I like like that movie a lot. Um, Yeah, Boy's really good. I hate Jojo Rabbit. But like I like what we uh, do. What we do in the shadows is great, and even like all the stuff that he's been doing, like using his clout to kind of get shit like reservation great dogs. Show. Like I actually like what YTT does, while not particularly thinking that his, let's say, post ironic kind of detached sort of comedy is really my thing. And it's like, it's a little too twee for me, but like, I get it. I like for the longest time of why people really wanted to champion him. And he also just seems like a fun dude. Yeah. Like who gives a great interview and is like a genuine, like born performer. Who's always like, even when he's doing press for his movies, like he seems to be on one, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But uh, it's like, it's it. He actually, I, I think I see your point point as being like, that guy, the one that everybody had championed at one point, now everybody's kind of turning on and being like, have we had enough Taika? Like, it, or has Taika stretched himself too thin, kind of like the MCU to where it's like, we don't They're need together. you everywhere. Like, maybe scale it back and do something like every couple of years or every, you know, five, six months in the MCU's case so that we can actually have our own time to reset and then come back and be excited for this shit again. Yeah. To want it. And yeah. And, and yeah, from a production standpoint, like it's beautiful, like good music, it looks great. Of yeah. Course. So it's, it's competent. I think the thing that really, that really sinks it is just that it's a talent. So I agree. Taika is, is a naturally witty. He's a born creator and performer. This guy can, shit out the funniest jokes in like five minutes. Right. And so everything is on paper really funny, but it's exhausting. Cause it's just like, it's like your friend at the party who's done way too much cocaine. You're like, dude, 
you're really funny, but I need a break. You know, it's, it's his too old to die young. It, it is, and it's but it's but but the speed is the opposite, right? It's like boom, right. boom, boom. It's exhausting the sense of like I need a break, and then it goes from like this like ridiculously farcical battle scene where he's like fighting these like goofy aliens, and it's this funny, completely played for last. The next scene is like Jane Foster with say four cancer. <laughs> Jesus. And it's like the music's like, there's no transition. It is like really impressive that it was made. Another movie, you're like, wow, you know, a guy with the gloves off. But again, I don't want to get too far off on the Tiger thing. But again, you have the sense of there is, I have hope that I think that these bigger brands and streaming services in particular, and like, I think, again, these, these kind of multi, these conglomerates like Disney, you know, that own everything. Um, and Netflix too, they, they kind of felt like, you know, it's too big to fail, you know, so, Oh, we're, we're good. And we can't, you know, we're just making gold. It's like, well, are you, are you? And eventually people don't want content. People want good stories. I, I I'm, I'm an idealist in that way, but I do believe at a certain point, cause like you said, it's the definition of, but you've also met Carrie. So sometimes I wonder <laughs> if people just want content because that girl will just chew up the worst shit that Netflix puts out there. But then she admits it. She goes, I just want to watch something where I can turn my fucking brain off and I don't, yeah. you know, I'm done with work for the day. And Fuck then I Boy Island down. on HBO. Exactly. You know? So I don't know how much people want good stuff. That's why I wonder if Too Old to Die Young, regardless of when it was released, if it ever would have had any shot with anybody. If you doled it out week by week, if you did it all at once, like, it doesn't matter. It's too much of not even a good or a bad thing, of just a thing. And people are like, hold the fucking phone, man. Like, I don't need all of this. Well, it's, you know, if we want to talk about content with a capital C, like what you're talking about with, you know, with Carrie's, like, if you want something you can fold your laundry to, this isn't it. While it is drone core and you need to plug in, like, it doesn't have the fun and the wildness of, like, good chattered, in your side of your ear. No. You know, where you're like, cool, I'm like making some food and like this reality show's on and I'm kind of picking up but I really don't fucking care. Yeah, at that point it you almost know? becomes a screensaver because it's just, yeah. it, everything is so visual in this world. But do you want to get to volume eight? Let's do it. All right. Volume 8, The Hanged Man. Martin, <laughs> how did you feel about Hart Bachner's passion play? God, I was so happy. Because, like, whenever he's on screen, like, I like the show a whole lot more. I, I think, like... The tone is just so different. And, and it's it's consistent when he's there, right? Like, yeah, his tone is, like... He's probably the most consistent character <laughs> in the whole series. Yeah, just a walking jag-off. Yeah, he's such a, like... 
he's just a piece of shit. And, you know, you have, so you have this passion play of, cause Martin's quitting, Martin's quitting. And he's sitting there with like chips in front of him at this desk wall. Or he's got his gun, his badge all laid out. Like he's turning him in, but yeah, like a bowl of potato chips. It's, and it's really fucking weird. And that's when he did the quote, you were doing right when well he's doing it because he basically comes out like he's crucified yeah and like almost like and, and calls martin a judas and is like how could you betray me and then the it, other fat detectives come out dressed like like mock centurions with spears screaming democracy is my bitch fake news fake news and then stab Bachner's Jesus and then it but it becomes like almost inconsequential because at the end Bachner's like oh it's fine like I still really like you and you can always come back if you want but like go do your thing but it's just such a another like hyperbolic a cab I hate all police statement from Refund where he's like look at these fucking assholes it's a really interesting um kind of pairing with a scene that comes really soon after, which is when Janie's looking for her dad. And right. Janie's at the police station speaking with this very, the opposite, a very competent female police officer who's the opposite of Hart Bachner, like a real cop who's asking like professional questions. And then gets to her relationship with Martin. Which is fascinating because it feels like one of the few scenes where reality, our reality, encroaches on this world that he's created. Or at least our morality. Uh, yes, yeah. Our, our our morality of a sense of, like, because you feel the nihilism of his world of, like, cops, robbers, murderers, you know, from from kids to adults, everyone is fucking, you It's know, a surreal level of, of amorality that, that yes. this universe kind of holds to be true. But yeah, because she's doing it like a normal interview and gets to Martin is like, and he was the last one to see your dad and he stays here. Wait, how old are you? And when, how long have you been together? And you met and it's like, you can feel her getting more and more antagonistic. And then to the point where Janie's finally like, is he going to get in trouble because of this? Which is so, I really like that line a lot because it's something a teenager would say. You know what I mean? It's one of those, like, I'm not going to get in trouble, am I? He's not going to get in trouble. It's like what a girlfriend would say about her teenage boyfriend. It's like, he's fucking 30. And it really is a scene where it's like, especially coming so soon after the Hart Bachner scene, it's a very realistic scene, you know, of like real emotion. And, you know, in this episode, we have the torture and and murder of, of Martin, right? Which takes up the bulk of the 90 minutes of the episode. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting because... Again, it's very new Hollywood, it feels like, that kind of narrative where you think, it's like, oh, this is how he's going down. And we, we know that like shit's going to go bad with Jesus, but you have this scene of like the sense of, oh, man, like the noose is tightening is the feeling of this episode. Right. Yeah, it's all like, the chi- I have specifically written in my notes all the chickens have come home to roost. Because for it's for not, everyone. It's not just Martin. It's literally like... Uh, Vigo's cancer comes back because they go out to pull a job and he like more or less like collapses in the middle yep. of it with that awesome fucking like abandoned mall My sequence. favorite location in the series. Is that the same mall from Gone Girl? 
Ooh. That was the one that I kept thinking of, and I meant to look it up because it feels like, remember that whole sequence in Gone Girl where they go to that abandoned mall and it's just like inhabited by nothing but like meth heads and yes. shit? Yes. It looks the exact same with the escalator in the middle and everything. I mean, it might and be an LA mall that's just empty. That's what I mean. It, it And they both feel, it feels like a cavernous hole in the universe that Fincher would be fascinated by aesthetically at the very least. But anyway, it was just something that came into my head as we were watching this. But the other thing too, is that like Vigo's falling apart. Martin gets abducted, tortured, and well, spoiler alert, straight up murdered, decapitated, butchered uh, by Jesus. But the other thing too, is that like Janie's executed. Like I, I find her death to be one of the most shocking moments in the whole show, and when I kind of knew that we weren't fucking around like at all, like everybody was gonna die at this point because we we've already killed Damien, and then once you pop Jamie in the head, I'm like, so I don't think Martin's gonna make it. It. Well, I mean, back to your point earlier about Game of Thrones, like everyone's on the fucking chopping block here. Like there's, yeah. no, you know, at this point, it doesn't have the the wink wink of game of thrones of like, don't you can't love anybody. This is more just night, the nihilism of like, yeah, anyone could die at any point. And it actually, the, um, the reversal, the, the, you know, the sense of our, our hero, so to speak of Martin, you know, being taken and killed, um, reminds me a lot of like no country for old men as well with the, the death of jo- uh, Josh Brolin's character that it's this like very, and that happens off screen, but that, that very like shocking, like, Oh shit. Like that was our lead and he's dead and yeah. he died in a really just like kind of, and we know since Amazon released all of this at once that there are two more fucking episodes. There are two more hours after volume eight ends and Martin is dead by the end of volume eight. Yeah, it's like where where are you gonna go? And because he has been, I mean, a huge part. Like, yeah, obviously you have the episodes early on where it's all about Jesus before you come back to L.A. But it's it's one of those things too. The also like the moment he's abducted, he's dead. I mean, he doesn't do anything more for the narrative. He's just a piece of meat. Like he just he doesn't say anything. He's just <sighs> beat, he's beaten, whipped, and then decapitated. And it's like everything else in this series prolonged to like an excruciating extent to where we watch Jesus bullwhip him to where he's ripping the flesh off of his back and like till he's passed out in like he's not even moving anymore in this barn in the middle of nowhere that is still in true ref and fashion somehow lit like a bisexual nightclub. Like it's just nothing but magenta lights everywhere. Even as Martin's getting whipped to death in a horse stall. But the other thing is that the, the violence and the sadism in this give way to something even far more shocking, even by this show's standards is that the sex that comes out the sexual release that Jesus has with Yuritsa afterwards to where, you know, we've already gotten into the mommy role playing to where like he, she has him eat her out and is essentially like harnessing the spirit of his mother. But here, man, he goes to town on Martin, kills him. And then she jerks him off, makes him eat his own cum and then pegs him. With the bullwhip. Two, two separate scenes. Two separate scenes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because oh. after, he, after he kills Martin, 
is when she he comes back and is naked and she pegs him. Like that's near the end of the episode. Cause like, yeah, yeah that early scene, you're like, whoa. Cause you had, you had texted me. You're like, wow, there's some pretty gnarly stuff here. Like, and you're like, oh, I forgot about the cum spitting scene. She spit, <laughs> she also spits in his mouth while she's jerking him off. Let's, I know. Let's not forget that. And there, this is not the only piece of Nick Reffin media that we'll cover that involves somebody spitting into another person's mouth. He's clearly into that. Yep. Um, but it's, I mean, it's brutal. And but you know, very similar to we were. I think we were talking the other night. Of he's one of the few people who there is a pure like um non-binary sexuality to his movies right. of it's just like beautiful bodies, regardless if you're attracted to men or women. It's just it's like just like we talked about, you know, it's very similar to like crash. Yeah. You know, of these people who are they're more than they're less than or more than human. I'm not sure which. Depending on your on your take on Cronenberg's worldview, yeah, right, exactly. And so it's like gender doesn't matter. And so these You're scenes, flesh. these yeah, these scenes are like really like very strange, you know, and very like they're 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 sexy in their own kind of way. Even the stuff we'll talk about in episode nine with even more role play. Um, but then, I mean, the scene where he fucking, I mean, we've talked before about he just loves the actor who plays Jesus. He loves just shooting him, right? And oh, yeah. He's never looked, he really goes pretty far with these eight and nine where. Well, when he's all done up in the, the makeup by volume nine, I, I have a take on that, but I'm going to save that for that segment. But okay. yeah, he just loves even, he loves everything about that man. I mean, he's he's the bulge, right? I mean, like right. he comes in. He's the bulge. He's the bulge. You know, it's the woo. But he comes in wearing these like designer, like tidy whities with this like Roman print around. Like it's like something out of like like a high end Italian like fashion magazine. He's got leather boots on, and then his his whip, the machete, and it's him just posing. You know, cla- yeah. And it it's like oh. Fuck, like, I mean, there's some great shots. The scene where he whips Martin for, like, an extended period of time is also, like, beautiful. Like, it's just him and his pink light, his magenta light. It's incredible to look at. rolling up, it's like, oh, man. Well, that's one of the things I do want to talk about with Breffin that we haven't really touched upon, at least in this fashion, is that in being so morally hazy and nihilistic... I think it allows him to embrace sexuality in a way that few directors actually do. Like Verhoeven's the other one that mm-hmm. comes to mind to where it's, he relishes in the kinkiness and he, he's like, there's no shame to it. It's just kind of like, this is what this guy's into. And I think that's kind of my, my broader take. I'll just get into it, I guess with volume nine, by the time that he's, like dressing up in women's clothing and doing mommy role play with Yuritsa. Like it feels a lot like Refn embracing fetishism and saying it's okay because like he ascended to this level of power, executed the man who killed his mom and is now kind of spiritually free in a way so that the sex, as much as we're commenting on how gnarly and shocking it is, it kind of speaks to his character to where like maybe before he was uh, encased or imprisoned by like that kind of traditional Mexican masculinity to where like he would never 
be allowed to have a woman peg him or anything. It's just kind of, that's not what the cartel does. Like they're men, they fuck women. Like they, they are macho. They, they kill people. They torture people. They decapitate people. Like that's just what they are. But here it's almost like he is now the reigning Supreme King and is also like liberated his, his mother's ghost. Cause he even says like after he kills Martin, he tells Yuritsa, he's like, we need to go to the mansion, pack up everything and bring it here. We live here now because this is sacred ground. Like there's a, there's a spiritual element to even the sexuality and what it represents to Jesus to where like, he's free now. Like he's allowed to be who he is. Well, it's very much, I mean, because his also his happiest days, it sounds like, were when he was in high school with his mother. With his mother. You know, and so it's like, I'm going to return to that. Like, I've, I've gone out and I've done what I was expected to do, like, because it always felt like from the first time you see him in episode one until going to Mexico, very uncomfortable with the world he's been thrust into. Right. Right. Of like, he's not really, like, he's not a hitman. He, he becomes a hitman to, to, you know, avenge his mother, kills the wrong guy. You know. You and, never really see him do drugs. Yep, he he. I don't. He barely drinks. He, you know, he's he's kind of coming into his. He has to. He's not even coming to his own. It's like I have to play this role, and it to to Yuritsa, though we talked about this earlier. I think off off mic was. She is very much using his kink to get what she wants. Like she's sure. she's infiltrated. She infiltrated it from the beginning. You know, infiltrated his family with his uncle. Then when uncle dies, she looks for the next most powerful person goes with, with him. Um, and using that to, to power her mission as the high priest of death, which is to infiltrate and liberate all the women, all the women that she can, she can find, especially the ones who are enslaved by the cartel and like their, their sex trade, which comes in one of the great moments of Nick Reffin violence Two in of this <laughs> volume where she yeah. goes and just wipes out an entire motel worth of dudes to, to free a bunch of prostitutes. There is, yeah, cause I love this is awesome. That moment where so, yeah, it's just like just nasty ass roadside motel. That's just all it is. You can tell is for like white businessmen to have sex with underage Mexican, Mexican, Mexican kidnapped prostitutes. Right. And she walks up. It's the end of rolling thunder, but the modern version. Yes. You know, and walks up and she's just looking badass as hell. And Which, they're like, and they're I, like, I had a question about the badass as hell part. Cause I, I wrote this part down in my notes, her death tree jacket. If you look at it, especially with that awesome follow shot, where like it's right just a the jacket. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah. It's her version of the scorpion jacket. Yes. Only it's if you look at it, all I don't know if all of the blossoms, like the skulls on it, like I don't know if they increase as the movie goes along, but like it's clearly supposed to be a representation of every man that she kills. Her tree to, of souls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's like she walks up, and I, I love that because I, I I love her jacket, and I love that she like. Like the driver, like um, in um, in Drive, very much, I mean, full-on comic book character hero. Yeah. You know, that she becomes this superhero when she is in High Priestess of Death mode. Very much this, like, this um, spirit of vengeance, right? And her walking up, and these guys are just the nastiest, just, like, businessmen. They look at her, and like, oh. And she goes, and with, the, with an American accent, too, kind of like, hey, guys. 
Yeah. And she rarely speaks in English in the show, right? She's like, hey, guys. And then just whap, it just like destroys them. And you have that scene where she opens that final door and Refn being a normal, subtle Refn, there's a guy with fucking aviators on and a fucking Nazi flag hanging behind him. And she shoots him in the dick. Just like... Oh, it's, 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 it's him indulging his love of exploitation cinema to the max. On. Yeah. To where he's like, these are not supposed to be subtle in these motels and these in the middle of nowhere in America. Like this is where hate and evil are breeding. Like there are literal Nazis here who are fucking brown women to death. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, yeah. Cause I think it's interesting. Your point there though, is that like as, as over the top as his style can be, nothing that happens in this show is outside the realm of what happens. Like, that's no. what the cartel and what what white businessmen do, right? Like that's real. Like this is and this on. is these are cops in Trump's America who probably all believe in fake news and yep. like how they treat democracy as their bitch, as we see on the news every day with how they brutalize people, particularly people of color again, and or in like the Uvalde shooting, run away oh. like fucking pussies while kids are getting massacred in a in a schoolroom. Like he. You're right. Like this is a fantasy, but it takes place in our reality. Like he he doesn't allow the truth of our world to escape. Yeah, it's not. You know, you watch Drive, and Drive's a complete fantasy world to me. You know that it, it while those things all can happen in real life, it is it feels a complete put on in a cool way. This is like a movie world. This is yeah. Michael Mann. This is Walter Hill. It's a comic book through and through. Yeah, this is dealing with again, and I think maybe it's possible that Brubaker, if he had his way, would have been more quote unquote realistic. You know, Brubaker also likes to be very, um, very He's genre noir. He's noir. He he leans into the genre noir, the hard boiled like kind of crime fiction element of his stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's like after realism, but I think he'd probably like to lean a little bit more toward realism than Reffin would. You oh, know, sure. or at least towards normal human emotions. Yeah. <laughs> From a scene to scene basis. He's not anti-human. Right, right. Now the one thing we did talk about this a little bit off mic, but I want to revisit it while we're recording here. Um because we talked about and it it's great that we're going to be able to cover Neon Demon now, too, because that, in a weird way, feels sort of like a prequel thematically oh, to yeah. Too Old to Die Young. But, you know, you pointed out how Yuritsa is using Jesus to essentially infiltrate a system of violence, a system of male-dominated, oppressive violence that's now spreading into America through the cartel, and she's using it to liberate women uh, that they're enslaving. Now, Diana is, uh, you know, Jenna Malone's character is almost like the flip side to her in America. She's using Vigo to do the same thing, to go in and kill pedophiles, like wipe out the evil that's infected, you know, our society, you know, one by one. And the people who cause these children in particular, innocence, we'll say. Yeah. On both sides, it's innocent people, complete innocent. Now, the one question I did have, because this does come from like Refn's, again, nihilistic worldview and and kind of amoral stance on a lot of this, is that in order to 
dole out their own form of justice, they almost have to increase the violence mm. because in Yuritsa's case, like she's going to allow this man to become a king and to to institute even more uh, horrible practices, let's say, as a cartel boss. So like the violence and the body count and everything, they're going to be ramped up while she basically does her own form of justice on the side. And the same thing could be said about Diana is that like she's literally utilizing a guy whose only tool now, since he's a, a dying piece of meat walking around the earth, is the only thing that he can do now is bring more death and bring more pain. Like even though he's caring for his dying mother, like that's the last bit of like humanity he has on this planet so it just made me wonder about Refn and the moral stance that he takes is that it's almost like yes these women are infiltrating these systems of, of violence but in order for any kind of true justice or healing or cleansing to be served the violence has to be increased like it's there's always there's never one without the other it's always about cause and effect there's almost like a, I mean, there's a very spiritual feel, especially these final episodes, very like almost like Old Testament. Oh, yeah. Kind of feel. So that you think about just like Christianity and that part of the Bible, it, it was this cleansing fire that God would bring. And it feels like yeah, they're Sodom both and Gomorrah. Just, you know, or even Jesus like just coming into like the temple, right? You know, and flipping the tables. And like there's this. Now that's nowhere near as violent as a lot of the stuff, you know, in the judges, you know, the first, and there's a whole thing of, uh, or even Cain and Abel, oh. like the oldest stories in the Bible of like, there's always death. There's always, it always results in some kind of pain and anguish. Yeah. But I mean, but specifically speaking, though, it's like God's vengeance. And like, in yeah. Especially Old Testament is like, Hey, this ain't going to be pretty. You yeah. Know, this it's is all about be, wrath. Yeah. It's going to come through. And, but I do, it's interesting though that, yeah, cause Diana, also, now I don't. It doesn't seem she's using, you know, um, Vigo in the same way that Iritsa is using. Uh, no, Jesus. I want to get to that when we get to the actual volume yeah, so nine part of it because, like, there is different. something happening there too. But I do think it's just another fascinating thing to consider is that you know we joke about Refn and how indulgent and fetishistic and out of his mind he is. And even I believe like an episode or two ago, like called him possibly a dumbass <laughs> to where like we, well, I mean, and we're like, we laugh, but it's almost like how much of this is really worth the shit? Like in any kind of intellectual sense, right? Can we actually mine anything from this beyond like, Oh, that's fucking cool. Oh, that's an amazing bit of cinematic technique that he's employing there. And here I do think that there is sort of a comment happening about the idea of like, can true justice actually exist? Can you actually like tip the scales in any like reasonable way towards the people who are being victimized? Because even these soldiers who have like kind of made it their main mission in life to deliver that sort of justice, like they have to increase the pain. Like it's almost like they have to turn the dial up a little bit for them to even have any kind of impact on the world. So like, does it mean anything? Again, it goes back to the old Nick Reffin, like nihilistic question. Does any of this like mean a fucking thing? Yeah. You want to get to volume nine? Let's do it. All right.
Volume 9, The Empress. Martin, we've already kind of covered a lot of this, particularly the sexuality. So the one thing I do want to get to in particular is the cartel boss uh, meeting that they have in this bizarre Mexican nightclub while they have a... Is that an Orbison impersonator? Who's that supposed to be? Yeah, it's very David Lynch. Well, it feels like... Remember in uh, True Detective Season 2 where Colin Farrell has like the dream where they're in that, that, that bar where he's like wailing on, I can't remember. It's an actual singer that they're doing, but like there's that whole like bizarre dream sequence that's set to that too. But yeah, it's that very Lynchian like rockabilly oddity. Yep. But man, this meeting of cartel, like underlings feels borderline like an SNL skit because they're having votes on putting like moratoriums on torture or like, like there's this great line I wrote down where the, the one guy, the guy who Jesus made bark like a donkey, by the way, is like, okay, so we're going to put in more. We're going to put a moratorium on torture. Okay. You want to send a message you make them disappear from now on. It's like, oh, that's the better option of the two is to actually just disappear a motherfucker as opposed to like bull whipping them in a barn. Yeah. And it's a very comedic scene too. It goes down this rabbit hole of like, um, almost like TikTok or like live stream stuff of like, we're going to have cartel TV. Like there's money there. And yeah. And then it it cuts to, we kind of mentioned this in the earlier, in the previous episode, but just like, Hey Zeus, we don't even realize it's there for like 10 minutes of the scene. It like, reverses the angle and he's sitting in like a, a booth with Yuritsa and he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Or the cartel, you know, yeah, no like, moratoriums on torture. We're going to torture more. We're going to kill more. We're going to burn their houses down. We're going to kill their families. It's actually, it's the one thing that I love about Refin is that he's not a dialogue guy. Like we've covered multiple times about how there's even notorious stories about like drive, like him taking a, a machete to that script and making it the pure kind of cinematic and more like visually cinematic experience that it is like when he does have a monologue though, he lets the actors like really fucking cook and like Augusta Aguilera here gets another kind of like the, the bark like a donkey scene. Like he really gets to shine because that, monologue that he has is fucking awesome. Yeah. And again, it feels back to talk to a couple episodes ago. It's full on Michael Corleone. Yeah. You know, it's that same idea of like, here's this guy and it's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to murder everyone. Yeah. Like that's the only way we can do this is to torture and kill and rape the entire fucking world until we're basically, he's, he's basically saying it's like the return of the Kings. Like we're going to be fucking Kings. Yeah. Like that's his, you know, that's his future. He even calls himself the King of Kings essentially. Yeah. So, and that again brings me back to my point about your and the idea of like this cleansing justice that like, he's going to turn like he's doing the spinal tamp tap amplifier, man, where he's going, he's going to 11 with the worst things that the cartel can do. And in him doing that, like, I wonder if that negates any kind of justice that she even brings to the world beyond like a, a mere like spiritual level, let's say. But that also brings me to Vigo. This is the other main kind of thrust of this volume is that we watch Vigo's mom die, unfortunately. And, and he has to discover her body at the 
level of rage that he feels with this last bit of humanity and him being essentially jettisoned from the planet, he asks permission from Diana to go on a killing spree. And she resists at first because she, it seems like this is the first moment where we get with Diana where it, it almost seems that she at least recognizes that she does have a chained pit bull and that she, mm. she controls him to a certain degree. She that, loves and, him. I and think that too. There's, well, there's a love yeah. there, but I more mean that like, it's like people who love pit bulls and like anybody who goes to their house and is like, Ooh, they're, they're scary dogs or whatever. And they're like, no, 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 no. They have the capacity to be scary, but they're actually good boys. You know, like he's her pit bull to where like she sees in him like, Oh, if we don't give his violence a purpose, it could just go off in any direction that it wants to. And that becomes destructive instead of productive. And like, I think that she's relenting at first being like, look, I get it. You're sad. You want to lash out at the world because you lost, you just lost your mother. But like, let's think about this for a sec until it, it's pretty clear that he's like, I'm going to kill somebody. So you might as well like make it a good somebody. It, it, it reminds watching this scene and then the following scene reminds me of, uh, observe and report when uh, Seth Rogen is applying to be a cop and he's being interviewed by the psychologist. Oh, yeah. And he's like, I have this dream where I have a shotgun and I've been blessed by God and I come in and I'm killing everybody. And there's black clouds <laughs> that roll in like cancer. <laughs> he says this whole thing and, and, and he's like, and I, I come in, I'm just like, and he's telling her, he's like, I'm off my meds. Oh, when did your doctor take off? Oh, they didn't. I just stopped taking my meds. It's just like, reminds me of that, of them being like, Oh, God. oh, I'm dealing with a legit sociopath here. But the scene that it leads to, so she she says in um too old to die young. All right, here's the here's the address of this um trailer park of just pedophiles and just degenerates. She literally says it's populated by nothing but pedophiles and rapists, which I have a question. How? How does this exist? Because like I just want to know. Like, obviously, we're back in Nick Reffin fantasy land. Like, it's his, and this is very Brubaker comic book, like, just, oh, yeah, out of this world, like, craziness. But, like, I just want to know, like, what are the logistics for starting a rapist and pedophile only trailer park? Like, is there a homeowners association? Is there, like, do you have to prove yourself before setting up camp there? There, like, like what's uh Danny Trejo's character from Con Air where he has to Johnny oh. Johnny 39 or whatever like do do you have to show like you're tattooed with the hearts of your victims or whatever I just I want to know like are there dues that you have to pay do you have to rape somebody like are there a like is it like a film critics association where you have to turn in so many reviews like do you have to molest so many boys or like rape a, a number of people to like keep your membership it just it's a boggling well, it's, place it, to live. It's two things. It feels like it can can exist in the same world as like True Detective. Sure. Of some of those places of these like... Or the rape porn dudes from this too. Yeah, from the, or Cold in July. Yeah. Like that kind of just like off the beaten track. And there are places, but because of the way also, and I know you're like making a joke, but because of the way the scene is shot, 
it is full on not reality. I mean, it's full on comic book land. It's and gorgeous. So, yeah, this was the scene where I was like, okay, I'm totally clicking with this show. First of all, ideologically. Second of all, stylistically. <laughs> because for you haven't watched, those of you haven't watched it, he kills everybody. He kills Trump's America. Like, it's very clear that it's like Nazis, uh, super like, uh, like, like xenophobic people wearing like kind of Trump's America kind of like uh, white trash Confederate flags Nazi like a, a Santa Claus he calls a Santa Claus a rapist Santa Claus at one point dudes grilling but also the way it's shot too like that trailer exploding in super slow motion almost piece by piece is just like gorgeous well my favorite shot of Refn ever is in this scene and it's this it's this profile shot it's two, two scenes, two shots. It's a shot of Vigo with the shotgun up, and it's complete blackness around him. It's com- it is a complete frame of a comic book. This is like, this is like fucking like Frank Miller 300 level, like that kind of like, this is not, a, this is a comic book. Him with the, the, sorry, not the shotgun, he's got the Winchester, you know, raised. And there's another one where he's just, I think it's before he's getting ready, and he's just holding the gun and like thinking, his, his head's down, he's got that fucking ball cap on, and... One of we were talking about earlier off mic, but like one of Brubaker's collaborators is Sean Phillips, one of his main his main artist partner. This is a Sean Phillips frame, like, and this just seems like the full on like another thesis scene of like this is what he thinks of Trump's America. Is like, you know what? I really do believe. I wish you would all get fucking blasted away. And you know what it reminds me a lot of um, is one of the scenes from the house that Jack built, where he kills the two kids with the red hats on. Which, oh, which, yeah. which, which was oh, I never Trier's. thought about that until you just said that. It is really similar. Yeah, full on like, hey, these are Trump supporters, and this is what Von Trier's like, I want to do to these people. Yeah. You know, and like no ifs, ands, or buts, like they they deserve this. The scene is amazing. And then it and then it ends with um you you cut to Diana in this uh this diner. Um, waiting for all green, all green, waiting for, very similar to one of the diners we'll talk about in Neon Demon. Um, that, oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, almost like the same, <laughs> the same location. I don't fucking know, you know, because they have those huge leather booths. Yeah, and it's like uh, you think it's just like a normal diner, but it's actually like kind of classy. And she tells this girl the story of the true story of the big bad wolf and and Red Riding Hood. And the her, server, she has the server sit yeah. down with her. Is this very pretty, good like girl. And yeah, she tells the story of like what Little Red Riding Hood actually went through. And it wasn't that he ate anybody, he raped her. And then he made her come back and he continued to rape her. And then she's like, but in basically in my version, the real world, she's a woodsman, a hunter. And she's saying like her. Yeah. And she's like, and she slid him open, you know, from, from, from uh, tail to ta- tongue, tail to tongue, you know. Um, and then Vigo comes back and they kind of have this quiet. I moment. love, I no doubt. I, I've watched this now three times straight through, through. I cry at this scene every time because I find it. A, I think the uh, Cliff Martinez musical cue mm. is incredible. It reminds me of like the natural progression of uh, Nick Reffin using uh, Ritz Ortolani's Oh My Love from Cannibal Holocaust in uh, Drive. Yeah. And like. When you get here, he actually has an original piece of music that sounds like a Ritz Ortolani uh, soundtrack. But I find this, again, as we kind of parse through the questions of how much can we mine from this or whatever, like, this is the part that actually really does 
affect me because I bring it back to the idea of Diana and Yuritz's violence. And is there anything productive about what they're doing if they only have to increase it? I find the bond between Diana and Vigo incredibly touching because like you said, like I think that he loves her and she loves him. And then you realize in that moment, like what their relationship actually means, but beyond like the functionality of it is that it becomes a show about if the apocalypse is actually happening, if we're actually surrounded by nothing but shithead cops and MAGA fucking chud assholes and Trump is going to rule and nihilism is going to be the only solution to existing inside of it. Who do you find to comfort you during the apocalypse? And mm. what do you turn towards? And I love that moment where they just touch and the, the and a classic refin long shot to where you never know when it's going to end. Like, cause there's no dialogue in it. They just look at each other across the table reach out and touch each other while this amazing Cliff Martinez uh, musical score plays. And then the volume just ends. But to me, that's, it's so incredibly touching on like a deeply spiritual level because it's literally just about like, if the world is collapsing, at least it's good that you found one person who shares your ideology and like has a warmth about them in a, a sea full of like anti-humanism, it's possibly the most human moment in the whole show. Well, and we talked, I mean, I think we brought up way a few episodes ago, but like Brisson, it has yeah. that emotional transcendence to it. Right. Cause you have the coldness of the world. Every episode is just filled with the coldness of humanity and the inhumanity to man. And here's a moment like you, we've all we've seen that the the world's on fire and it's going to keep burning, you know. And here's like two people eating a piece of pie, you know, together. Right and after he has just murdered fifty, <laughs> a whole trailer park of rapists, yeah, and pedophiles, just apparently big pieces of shit. So um, no, I also find it, and I just I could watch John Hawks do anything. I mean, he just continues to be amazing, and then he. Well, and we'll we'll yeah. get into it more in volume ten in a moment here. But Jenna Malone too. Oh my God! Is her uh, team up with Nick Reffin between this and Neon Demon? Like she's just magic every time she's on screen. Well, she's she's not anti-human. She's like she's angelic in this weird. Like she's she feels like an like an alien being in both in both of them. Well, because you know? in this too, there's. This is the the weird moment towards the end. And again, we, you brought up earlier in, in kind of the intro to the, the episode, how like I was joking with you about like, at any point, do you think Nick Reffin was like, will there be a season two of Too Old to Die Young? Because here they introduce a totally odd and outlandish element of her character to where like she wakes up at one point and her eyes are tinted different. They're silver. They're, they're full on silver orbs. Yeah. She looks like an Oracle from like the Greek days and goes and discusses with another Oracle. The fact that she is talking with, I can't remember. What does she call them? The, the furies or the, no, she just said, I talked to the, um, oh, it's not the visions. Um, the voices, it's, but it's, it's yeah. not the voices, but she's essentially saying like, I talked to the gods, like the, the fates from, from the Greek well, days 
are the ones guiding me here. And it adds this, she goes to essentially get healed from this other uh, uh, psychic or what have you so that her eyes go back to looking human again. But it, it introduces this entirely weird supernatural element that has always been kind of bubbling beneath the surface, especially with Yuritz's character and her being, they always kind of hinted at like Diana maybe might could be psychic or is at least like into some new age, weird crystal shit that's going on that might also like give her some of these visions, but it's like here they, they full on say like, she's talking to the gods and she's, like bringing that information back home. And like, there is like a purely spiritual level of the, the, that, that exists to the violence that she and Vigo are doling out. Well, she, I mean, we'll talk about it. I didn't want to get ahead, but there's, you know, she gives her prediction in the next episode of the future. Right. She's Cassandra from Greek myth. Right. She was the one who's like, I know where we're going and no one's listening to me. Like I, I know where, were pointed like I she had she had um precognition you know the sense of like I know we're marching off a cliff here and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs and no one wants to, to hear me and so they're very much ha- and I, I love the the introduction of all the supernatural stuff like I'm in like if you do that I'm I'm gonna like your shit better I like that again in classic trademark Nick Reffin fashion it just happens and you have to accept what's going on and yep. kind of decode it on your own. Yeah. I just, but I, I love cause cause she and Yurita had the sense of like, almost like tarot. They're both tarot readers in a way. I mean, obviously the tarot card obviously is the right. title, but it's, they're both dealing with the inevitability. The whole thing has this sense of fate to it as well, you know, um, which is what tarot is kind of telling you. <laughs> it's like, what's yeah, your fate? You can't actually like dodge or change the cards. Like they're always going to hang over you. Yes. You want to get to volume 10 and wrap this baby up? Yes, sir. All right. Volume 10, The World. This is, as we kind of talked about, Martin, the coda, the end, the grand summation to this grad student thesis that Nick Reffin has visually written for 38 hours. Yep. And the other thing that I kept thinking about that I jotted down in my notes is that being a kid from the 90s, you'll also relate to this. It feels sort of like the secret track on mm. what, when you used to buy an album offspring. Uh, yeah. Like offspring or Nirvana or like one of them to where like you would go and then like fast forward through a bunch of silence and then get to this weird little toss off yep. experimental moment because like 
we're left with Jenna Malone's Diana and then Yuritsa. And that's it. And it, the, the episode is only 30 minutes long where the rest range from like, you know, 65 minutes to straight up almost like a hundred. Um, and like, this one's almost bifurcated in a way mm-hmm. to where the first 15 minutes belong to Diana. We're just hanging out in her house with her. This very stylish, like LA home. That's awesome. That's amazing. And we're My wife's dead tech, dead tech <laughs> bullshit house. <laughs> Her hers is much warmer than that. She even has a pool. Thank you. But and Macaulay does not. No, there's there's no. Yeah, there's no pool in the back of Vincent Hanna's house. But like, uh, you, you know, we watch Diana dance to Goldfrap, and then pretty much like give the grand summation in this disaffected detached monologue that you hinted at in the last segment about like the fates told her that it's only going to get worse from here. Like if we think the world is crumbling now, just wait 10 years when there's nothing left, but Niall, like nothing but narcissistic pain and suffering. She, something you said, um, I think it was off mic is that, or actually, you texted me this. This whole segment with her, it feels like COVID. You know, it's a, yeah, it, it's it, crazy it, it, because you opens up with her having VR, like VR masturbation, like she's watching something VR slush. She's being like instructed through her headphones, like how to rub her clit. Yeah, and it's like a, it's it's a sexy scene. I think you know it's very hot, and then it's her, like you said, dancing for a long thing and it's a gold frap to gold frap and watching monkey puppet, this YouTube video of (laughs) I wrote this down. I love, I love monkey puppet so fucking much. So it's this ridiculous, almost feels like, uh, dark side of Mr. Rogers, like the land of tomorrow, whatever, or like lamb chop or lamb chop. And it's like, Long live the new god, monkey puppets! And she's watching it and like laughing, and it has again that that COVID feel of us all kind of like being wor- locked inside. The world was burning down around us, and you're kind of like, all I can do is like look at stupid shit. And then, like you said, she gives a speech, and I wrote down a lot of the lines she said because I was so blown away. She's like, narcissism will no longer be repressed. Very much Trump, right? And she goes, and as man implodes in a wash of blood and silence, a new mutation will emerge, which is like woman. I think she's saying, because then she says, and after all that happens, I will declare the dawn of innocence. So it's like after the blood is washed clean of you men, the women will will reign in the wasteland. Well, it's the whole idea of and woman will inherit the earth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, dinosaur eats man, woman inherits the earth, you know, and... And it's it's a really kind of like I think you know moving scene, and it also feels like kind of like very two thousand one, like the Star Child idea it's, of like yeah. the cyclical nature of like you know and that Nietzschean allegory, everything's going to burn, then we kind of come back and start over again. Yeah, it's about transcending that what that which came before yeah. to find an entirely new kind of life form. Yeah, and and then. We get a pretty we we leave the experimental Nick Reffin COVID zone, which again we should state that like this was all shot and released before COVID, yep. which makes it even more eerie. And 
frankly prescient in a weird way. Uh, And I want to talk about that a lot when we get to Neon Demon is that I feel like, again, for all of our uh, giving Nick Reffin a hard time for being kind of a a premier bullshit artist and, and, and master, like kind of empty stylist, it feels like at times, he kind of predicted a lot or at least had a lot to say about what he thought the future would look like. And he's kind of dead on when it comes to, to both Trump and in neon demons case, me too. Yep. So, but then we transition into Yuritsa's 15 minutes, which is pretty straightforward. Her walking into a bar, fucking murdering everyone around her before making all the dudes in this shithole, like Mexican, again, prostitute bar, listen to one of the prostitutes sing a ballad about the high priestess of death and how they're all coming. But again, to bring it back to the idea that they're flip sides to the same coin, the ballad is just the monologue. It's literally about the woman's going to, to swoop down annihilate everybody with kind of a cleansing fire and then free us all so that now the land is ours. And you're like, yes. And she does in spectacular fashion. She, it feels like an art house version of a Rodriguez scene. Yeah. But this could be a Desperado. Desperado. It felt like it, right. I was thinking Desperado the whole time. And she goes full comic book of, you know, pulling the gun out and it, it also has a very classic, like Western, of like, I'm going to have them put, it's in like Rio Bravo, the, the, the Gallo. We're going to have you play the song of death before yeah. I kill you. It's bad fucking ass, you know? And it's just, it's a really triumphant, really cool ending. Um, and it ends, it ends on a, on a weird high note. And again, I was just like, we were talking, I think in person, but over text, it was like the, the final the two who are left standing are two women that all the men have fallen away. You know, even like the man that she loves, like Vigo, like he's in my mind, he's like dead the next day. Like that's kind of how my brain, like he has nothing left to do. You know, if, if not dead, he's he's gone from this story. It almost seems like. Well, it it's good to remember that the very first line of di- maybe not the very first one. One of the first lines of dialogue is Larry Martin's partner saying, "Women are the root of all evil." You know, and by the end, the only people remaining that we realize that this is truly a woman's story. It's about these 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 two deliverers of like true justice, like transcending their their male prisons and and kind of bringing their own agenda with them. And it's again for all of Nick Reffin's kind of destructive nihilistic tendencies. Like since only God forgives. He's had, I don't want to call it a feminist slant because pump the brakes. Yeah. But he is preoccupied with women and their place in society and particularly how shitty men are towards them. No, I, I, what a great point to make. I mean, that's the first line because yeah, you think of that first scene, he goes beyond that. He's like, I'm going to have to kill her. Right. Because she's going to destroy me. You know, he's basically saying if she's going to ruin my kids, I got my wife, like I'm going to like... Might have been the wisest dude in the entire thing if if Jesus hadn't killed him. Right, yeah. And it's just, it's this sense of, you know, it gets to this point of the two women who are last, you know, again, left standing are like, we use the system. Then you have people like, you know, Janie, who is very much, while she's uneven, is is an innocent, I think. It's supposed to be more of an innocent, kind of past. No, I, I disagree. Really? I think Janie was supposed to be an innocent who was corrupted 
by her, uh, let's say, wealth of privilege. Mm. To where, like, yeah. and I think that that's the idea of, like, her, you know, in hindsight, going back and that whole scene between her and her dad and her dad being like, don't go to Harvard, basically come and work for the family business and then celebrating that she was going to on her 18th birthday party is that that's Refn saying, like, she could have done something with her life. She could have yeah. gone and and maybe infiltrated some kind of system and brought her own agenda to that as well. But instead she took the easy path and was just an abusive, it's going to go to work for like an abusive weirdo narcissistic shithead. Yeah. Like a Weinstein. He's a, he's a film producer. Too. Exactly. So it's like, he's a full on. And like, also like, I think to bring it back to that scene in the bar between her and the bartender where she talks about and, and even embraces the idea that like, if you don't serve me, my, I'll just call my dad and have it shut down. Like my age doesn't matter. What matters is like how much money I have in my pocket. Like True. she was never an innocent. She was just corrupted by like, honestly her own genetics almost like yeah. again, fate uh, laid out her path before she even knew it. Yeah, that's fair. And I think that though, again, to that scene, I think in episode eight where she's talking to the, the female officer is there's a moment of like, Oh, she's still a fucking kid. Like, right. where, is she going to get in trouble? Is like, through all that shit, it's like, she's a fucking, she's a child. Right. You know? And so, but I agree, she has been corrupted by, especially the world of LA, you know? And all her friends suck, too. Like, all that stuff at the party with, you You know, Reese is looking at all them, like, while she wants to save women, she almost doesn't want to save these women. <laughs> you know what I mean? She wants to save true innocence. Well, like, you, yeah. we keep bringing up Trump, but she's Trump's daughter. Like, that's what she's supposed to be in this. Yeah. And that, like, maybe at a certain point, Trump's daughter or Eric Trump or, you know, Donald Trump Jr., any of them could have said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not just going to take my family's privilege and, and run wild with it and do the same old destructive thing. Like, I, I know my dad's my a monster. Thing. Like, yeah. Like, and you don't have to come out and be and disown your father entirely. Like you can still be part of a family, but you can be like, no, I'm going to walk my own path. But she doesn't. And I think that's very purposeful in a weird way to where like, again, because of these actions, she's executed for it. Like, because she thinks it's just okay. She can fuck a cop who's 30 years old. Who cares? What, who's going to say anything to her father? You know, yep. And even her own father's not going to rectify that situation or, or correct it in any way. It's just going to continue because he in turn gets to mine him for, for info so that he can make movies. Yeah, absolutely. So Martin, before we get to neon demon, I do want to do our own summation in a way. So the first time you tried to watch this, you couldn't finish it. Now I've forced you at gunpoint to watch all of Too Old to Die Young, all 57 hours of it. How do you feel about it now? I mean, much better than before. Um, we were talking off mic. I, I'm, I appreciate that it exists. I genuinely do. Um, you know, it's like uh, Owen Wilson in Zoolander. He's like, I like Sting. I don't listen to his music, but the fact that he's making it, it means a lot, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> um, it kind of feels like that. Um but there are also scenes that pop out where I'm like on cloud nine. I mean, again, like the, the, the destruction of the, um, of the trailer park, um, 
some other I'm trying to think other scenes that really popped out to me. We've obviously talked about them, you know, um, but just the, the motel massacre motel even mass- from these last couple, like the, oh, the, the episode five in general, the diner sequence between Vigo and Diana, all, yeah, yeah. all of the rape porn, like hunting is amazing. The, the whole James Urbaniak performance, all of Billy Baldwin, whatever is going on there. Like, yeah, I think it's in a weird way. It's almost like the law of averages. It's like if this artist that I like is given this giant blank canvas and gives us like just a shitload of his own thing, regardless of how indulgent it may be or how droning or maybe wrongheaded or narratively it er- Take take your pick of the criticisms that have been lodged at uh, Too Old to Die Young. At a certain point, if a guy that you really like just gives you a bucket of stuff that's purely his, you're going to find something in there that you're going to go, oh, well, this is pretty cool. Like, you do this. Like, I like this when you do this. Well, it's, you know, Michael Mann, who's a connective for both of us. We both adore him. And obviously, there's a lot of those elements in, in Refn. I feel a lot of times when I'm watching Refn, I'm getting, you know, that Michael Mann experience, you know, too, of just like that synth wave, uh, urban, super LA. LA neon design. And I mean, I'm not a huge fan of public enemies and black cats, not my favorite either, but like, I still watch those movies. Cause there's like about 40 minutes in each movie where I'm like, that's Michael Mann. And I'll just drink that. It's giving me exactly what I want as a whole. It's not my favorite. And I still like, I mean, I still really like. I think Public Enemies is vastly undervalued. I actually was re- I was rewatching it recently, and I agree. I think I've come back to it. Um, I, I I think it's one of the most wrongfully maligned movies of the last like couple decades. Like, yeah, I, I think it's actually really fucking good. Yeah, and I think the fact that it was shot on digital hurt it at first. That people were like, their mind, our minds were like, we want sepia tone, thirty five millimeter. Yeah, that's and it's it's a but that's one hundred percent like a, a totally different tangent. But that's honestly, I think the the thing that has kept a lot of people from championing it is that they in their brain through years of watching movies have been trained that period pieces look a certain way. And Michael Mann said, no, they're going to look this way in this. And they couldn't square the two in, in the, the let's say artistic appreciating portions of their minds. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you know, now that I finished it, I'm glad. I feel like I just read a big fucking book too. It has that feel, very novel. It's very novelistic. It's his Ulysses, if uh, you will. It's, I mean, big. <laughs> that too. Well, actually, I mean, they're both very dense, long. yeah, and long. And um, it takes you 86 hours to watch Ulysses, the same amount of time that <laughs> two old die young runs. It's um, no, I mean, I'm glad I did it. Uh, I did it because I love you, and I want to, you know. It, and I once I got past like episode three, I was like. This is not, and you had told me before, you're like, this is not going to be as bad as you expect. Like, once you get past a certain point, it clicks. Um, once you it, it find its own rhythm, it, it, it flows a little better. But yeah, I do think, I mean, okay. And again, I don't think this is purposeful, and we may have mentioned it before, um, but like, 
it does feel like an odd comment, maybe even inadvertently to where like what the standard criticism of a lot of streaming shows would be is that they'd be like, well, you got to get to like episode four is when it starts to get real good. Like you struggle with the first couple and then you get to four and then you're smooth sailing from there. It's just a real fucking masterpiece. And then you watch this, like this kind of does that, but I think it does it for different reasons. It has nothing to do with like your standard uh, Netflix or Hulu series or what have you. It's just simply because it's refing going hyper refing and being like, you're even either going to be into this or I don't give a fuck. Well, that's like his first, the first act of the narrative is the first three episodes. Right. Right. Or for, sorry, first two episodes. Like movement. It, yeah. It, yeah. The first movie, it's like you have, it's setting the scene for both these characters, you know, cause when you come back in episode three, right. To, um, well, and it's fair too, that like, one, two, and three, I think add up to almost five hours in length. And like, that is a lot of setup. It's all set up. It's all so, set up. So it's like... Getting him to Vigo at the end of episode three. I get why people bail on this thing because it's almost like, again, it's it's the age old criticism of like, oh, you got to struggle through it a little bit, but it, it gets good eventually. And it's like here, it's like, you got to struggle through like the actual narrative doesn't start until fucking five hours into it. Well, it's, you know, it's like watching, uh, I think them vendors, like until the end of the world, it's like, you're a crazy person. Yeah. It's like, well, it's like, your that's, that's like five hours long too. Right. And you're like, what are you doing? But it's like, I respect, I really just do respect the fact that he made this movie and it still is stylistically what I like. I, I think that I just, I love, that's why I love Michael Mann is you get both. You get like that style mixed with like some really strong like narrative thrust. Like man knows how to write a propulsive. Well, I think it's the difference between art and entertainment too. Man is an entertainer. He's a storyteller. Like yeah. he makes thrillers. Like even the insider. Like it's a movie about investigative journalism <laughs> through sixty minutes, and he shoots and delivers it like it's like a this spy international movie. spy thriller. Yeah, it's like Spy and Game, and it's fucking incredible. You have Lowell Bergman taking phone calls like ankle deep in the middle of like the the bluest Pacific Ocean ever. It's it's an amazing movie, <laughs> but it's the difference between him and Refn. Refn is like a pure artist. It's like. If you ever saw bands, there was this great quote I saw uh, from TV on the radio's singer, uh, Tunde uh, Adabimbe. Yeah, he's awesome. And he talked about their earliest days to where he was like, we had to learn as a band the difference between being artists and being performers. He was like, in our earliest days, you know, we would take a bunch of acid and fucking do our songs and like, but our backs would be like turned to the audience and shit. And like, we weren't performers then. We weren't caring about like entertainment. We were just doing our weird ass thing. But he goes, but as you actually got bigger and realized you had to bring this to an audience, it was like, then you became entertainers in a way. And I don't think, I think Nick Reffin did become an entertainer with drive as we kind of yep. covered. And he didn't like it. He was like, this isn't what I do. Like I'm doing my very unique, autorist pretentious thing. And like, if you like it, you do. And if you don't, 
you don't. And like he touches on being an entertainer in like the middle stretch with the James Urbaniac stuff, but even that involves fucking hunting down rape porn purveyors. Like it's yeah. it's really ugly, gnarly, exploitative shit. Not an easy meal. Well, it, you know, we've talked earlier in this these episodes about the return, you know, Twin Peaks the return. Right. That also I think is is Lynch promising the entertainment of Twin Peaks, but it's art. I really do think that that is because especially the early episodes, he's like, I'm not going to give you what you want. Like, I'm not going to give you the easy meal of the continuing adventures of, of agent Cooper. You know, it's this continuous and especially episode eight is full on art. You know, it's a full on. Oh, it's an experimental, <laughs> film. experimental film. And it, it feels like there's a, there's a real, you know, perversity, you know, of to, that show too of like, oh, you think I'm the Twin Peaks guy? Well, this is Inland Empire. I do, <laughs> I do think the difference between Lynch and Refn though is that narrative, right, does matter more to Lynch in a lot of his works, particularly like like Blue Velvet. For all of its weirdness and perversity, like it's still perfect. Script. A murder mystery. Yeah, it's a straight you know? up perfect structured script. Exactly. You know, with the and, elements. And it has an incredibly, like, an incredible, like, gripping climax. It has great characters. It has a love story. Like, he's still doing, like, almost like Serkian classic Hollywood, but just through his artistic lens. Like, he's one of the few guys in the history of cinema, I believe, that has, like shown the ability to harness both at the same time to where he can be a real pretentious auteur, but at the same time be like, yeah, but I'm also just telling a story here and it's fun. Yeah. And we'll all in drive for all also is a very, like, I think it's an entertaining movie. Like it, it's heady, but it's also like, wow, it's this like flip side love story, you know, sexual thriller. Yeah. It's like a fucking like Esther house story or something, you know? Yeah, and then he just completely rejected that with only God forgives. Like it was clear that Refn was just like, I'm I that's not who I am. For better or worse. It actually I was thinking earlier, I was just like, um, just going through what was on HBO Max, like well, to put stuff on my list to watch. And the counselor popped up. Oh God. So similar though to what they I thought they're playing with similar things of I love that movie, I, I do but too. it's it is impenetrable for most people. Well, that's the thing. I saw it in the theater and I'm, I like McCarthy. And so I was like, Oh, it's just a McCarthy novel on the screen. I mean, he, he wrote it from scratch and it is, the it, truth has no temperature it, and it feels it. It's, it feels like a McCarthy story. It's like weirdly languid. It's also similar, like the spiritual stuff of like the desert and all that shit. They do catfish pussies that the whole, the whole, the sucker fish thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, Bardem's having the best day ever. And then like Brad Pitt, all the like ridiculous sense of Mexican the polo ties. That's the coolest thing ever. He's like, Oh fuck. You know, there's <laughs> also snuff films in that one. But they, they seem to be almost like similar worlds too. But also, oh, yeah. but also people, uh, two two artists. I'm talking about specifically McCarthy, not really Scott. Um, but telling a genre narrative in a very literary, artsy way. It almost know. feels like a deconstruction of a Tony Scott movie. Yes, very much. Yeah. You, you want to get to Neon Demon? Let's do it. All right.
we're back with our final segment on the cinema of Nick Reffin covering Neon Demon. Martin, you did not like this movie at all upon originally seeing it. Why? I mean, I think we talked before, but I was kind of already off with Only God Forgives. And then this, in my at the time, took it to what I thought was the limit of his um, esoteric nature. Wrong. Incorrect. Um, All 72 hours of Too Old to Die Young. <laughs> Like made you, tells you how wrong you were. The the millennium length movie, um, but I I like that we described Too Old to Die Young kind of like one of the monoliths from two thousand one, and there it was. It stood before me. <laughs> I didn't know what it was, yet I was captivated by it, and it kind of drove me crazy. Um, but. I saw it the night before I moved from Atlanta to Austin. It was yeah, summer 2016, like June. It was exactly six years ago, end of June. Um, with some friends to like say goodbye. I'm like, oh, we got to see the ref movie before I leave. And we were all like, man, fuck that movie. And I think what really was the last 20 minutes where it kind of goes off a little off the rails. But in my defense, watching it again after you know, getting through the 96 hours of, um, <laughs> to all 107 hours of too old to die young. <laughs> I, um, when I realized, Oh, you can go a whole lot further reffing with your, like there's a much ho- more whole hog reffing. Well, and, and we talked about this off mic, but like you get to neon demon and it's actually one of his most like, um, accessible, stand- accessible and standard movies, you know, yeah. like, even the way he shoots it, like shot reverse shot, like move, you know, it it's not just these slow pans across. And there are you get There's that a too. bunch of those too, especially in the hotel room with uh, L fanning and the, uh, the the scene with I love the scene of when she's auditioning for the runway walk. Oh yeah, and it's that like that like shot of all the girls sitting. It's like a fucking Renaissance painting, and they're all just like lethargically like kind of lying back and waiting to be called, and it's like. Very nice. There's also the pops of surrealism even early on, like the the, the mountain lion, yes. like getting into her her motel room. But we talked about this a little bit. We were texting back and forth. Is that it? Also, feels like it takes place right down the block from Too Old to Die Young. Like yeah. this is his prequel to that. Like this is him sort of setting up that world because it takes kind of like how Too Old to Die Young takes like a standard cop novel and just extends it <laughs> to abstraction to, to abstraction. No, yeah. I mean, really, I mean, it's, it's a hard boiled, you know, cop movie meets like a Don Winslow cartel thing that all of a sudden like Nick Reffin turns into his usual fetishistic insanity, but like neon demon is sunset Boulevard or starry eyes, starry eyes or any of these, these number of tales about, an innocent young girl coming to Los Angeles and being exploited by a world of beauty that she wants to become a star in. And she does, or you could even like do a star is born is the other one too. Uh, But it's like Refn being Refn, it becomes a movie about our narcissism our love of beauty above all else and how that consumes us. And in quite literal fashion leads a couple characters to consume someone else. 
Well, and, and watching again, there have been a few films since it came out that have done this, but actually not as good as Neon Demon. I'm thinking of Nocturnal Animals, and I'm thinking of... I like that movie. I do, fine, but I, I think I like I know Neon, a lot of people hate it. But I like Neon Demon more. Um, I do like all the stuff with Aaron Johnson and like Michael Shannon. Is like great, yeah. Um, but Velvet Buzz Buzzsaw is another one. The oh, Jesus Christ, what a huge piece of shit! And again, uh, about that's the art world, but it's that similar idea of like this, the 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 beauty side of L.A. and the pretension. What I think he gets to though, with this leading into too old to die young, is like that L.A. is a hungry place. I mean, he's just very clear about it's like from the, the mountain lion on. It's a, he's, I mean he's not always the most subtle with his symbolism, but it's like, this is a place that wants to eat you alive. And it ends with them eating her alive. I mean, it's a pretty just simple one-to-one analogy. Um, but I think it, with his also, there's some, obviously some, some abstraction as well, because, okay, you get the normal sense of like, there are these predatory men that, you know, pre me too, but you know, very, or right in the midst of when he was getting ready to get going of, the least surprising thing of like, oh my God, there's a photographer who wants you to get naked. It's these kind of like cliche scenes, but he does it in like his way. And also after that scene where she's, you know, cause he doesn't, they don't have sex. Like he paints her gold. Right. And, and she's naked. Um, or maybe he does have sex at the end. It's unclear. No, he, he doesn't, but it's, it's still, it's, it's a, it's very, it's, it's a song it to, to how like the, his, we were talking about, uh, the last couple volumes of too old to die young is that like his movies are somewhat predictive in a way and uh, quite prescient in that he was talking about me Too right on the precipice of, of me too occurring and think about that scene where Elle Fanning uh, goes in to shoot with Desmond Harrington's like heroin, like chic, photographer like he's so skinny he's awesome in this though he's really great in it but he looks like a skeleton like he looks like a ghoul and like she goes in to shoot with him and he instantly is like close set everybody leave and jenna malone's character ruby who's like at first presented as like her only true friend and in protector LA yeah and protector somebody who knows this business and knows how it can eat you alive she's even shoot away and then it becomes take your clothes off all, she gets down her underwear, all of it. And then he he's literally taking gold paint and like groping her and slathering her. Think about like a, this is again the the Nick Reffin extreme version of this I, this scenario. But how many stories like this came out during Me Too? Yeah, that were like. And then I worked with this director and everything seemed fine. But then one day I came in and it was a closed set and he had done this entire sex scene that wasn't in it like the uh the the blue is the warmest color what happened with that guy and how they it kind of came out that he was really kind of exploiting leah sadu and james franco all the the james franco stuff stuff yeah with the merkin shit like this is like it echoes that like refin again while painting this fantastical picture keeps the truth of our actual world, the ugly truth of our actual reality intact. Yeah. It's just, it's an interesting scene though, because you know, she gets out and, 
and, and yeah, I mean, yeah, especially with me too, and, and with abuse, like you don't always people don't always know they've been abused, right? At first, right. But she she has the sense of like, oh my god, like I've made it. Like that was actually really creative and wonderful, you know. And 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 then Ruby says, I don't think you should be alone with him. Right now, which is interesting because when we know where the film goes, or Ruby ends up being one of the ones who kills her because she will not basically because she won't sleep with her, you know. And it again with it, Refn kind of like going beyond gender. It's the sense of like the world it goes beyond men, you know, preying on women. It's like this town, everything here wants to destroy you men, women, animals, you know, and. They'll do it out of fame. They'll do it out of love. They'll do it out of anything. Yeah, and it's all out to get you. And even like you know, the, we talked off mic, but that Refin, who <laughs> doesn't care about also all the times you know um, character consistency or a strong arc of a character is like she jumps from being innocent and wide eyed to being this like cold like seasoned she understands the world I and mean, the scene where she basically drops her boyfriend because he doesn't want to be there with these with sketchy fucking Allison or Nivola who's um, basically playing almost like a stand in for Refn like they dress the exact same he has the same sort of poncy uh delivery like it's it's pretty funny it's it's one of the weird moments of, of possible uh self-efficacy on, on Refn's part. Well, yeah. And it's, um, I love the scene where he first meets her and it's, again, it's the, the runway scene where, you know, he's playing, he's basically making a, a, a pompadour like uh, flower out of his handkerchief while Abby Lee, uh, who's, you know, a competitor of, of Elle Fanning is like, he's not even looking at her. Like she does the whole walk and he's ignoring her. And then good walk too. Yeah, oh yeah. And I love, I think I believe great. She's awesome in Fury road. Um, and El Fanning gets up and you literally, the, the novel is a great actor and he looks like he just fucking came in his pants. Like he's just like transfixed by her beauty. And it's not just sexual. It's like everyone who sees her, it's, it's like fucking Marcellus Wallace's goddamn briefcase. It's like that level of like, they're seeing something holy. Well, Abby you Lee know? talks about it in yeah. the next scene. After You're the she sun. Freaks out, say, what does it feel like to be the sun that lights up the room, even on like the coldest day? And Elle Fanning just says everything. And it's because it's she has that it. I mean, they, they, you know, they say it earlier. I think uh, Ruby says it. It's like you got to say she kind of she has something, you right. know. And it's that classic Hollywood of like she has it, she or he has it. It's that. Um, transcendent quality. It's the movie star it's, thing. It's yeah. the X factor. It's yeah. what, I mean, it's what in Ty West's X even goes into is that she, you know, Pearl has that. She has the X factor, you know? Mm -hmm. And how do we, and so, but the movie is like, wow, the wonder of that and everyone being blinded by it. And then at a certain point, jealousy sets in and it's like, well, I want it either. I want to have it for myself, which is what Ruby wants in a way. I want to contain that or other people are like, well, I was going to fucking, I want what you have. Again, it's, we were, you know, we were talking again off mic of like men want to be with her. Women want to be here. Like she says mm -hmm. when she's standing over the uh, empty pool, um, very sunset Boulevard, by the way. Oh yeah. Of the, the pool, the representation of, uh, well, again, I think it's Nick Reffin playing with cinema 
and like acknowledging that he like loves movies and is is essentially going to remold them in his own image. Um, we haven't even touched upon Keanu Reeves yet showing up as just a brute motel manager who might be pimping girls out again, out of the, the, uh, the room next door. Uh, real elitist shit. Real elitist shit. Like, oh man, like Keanu's a fucking scumbag in this. He's, he's and, reveling in it. And this was at the beginning of the, the new keanu too, because you had John Wick and you had him appearing, doing not just that, but like stuff like this and like bit parts and like, um, uh, Anna, uh, Lily Amapur's, uh, the oh, Bad, Bad Batch. Batch. That was that same year. He plays the dream. Yeah. 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 He's, well, cause we were, t- I think he's very much a character out of, you know, too old to die young. Like this could be a complete yeah. scene. Everything with him is like this over the top, sketchy, like the worst kind of guy. And and I think he's more than pimping them. I think he's the one murdering them too. Like, cause she has the dream of him putting that knife in her mouth. Oh yeah. And I, cause she hears someone break in next door. I think it's him. I think he's like having his way or some, it doesn't even matter. The, the fact that like she can't, feel safe. And it's when he tries to break in randomly her place first and then goes next door. It's like, ugh, you know, and that's what leads her to Ruby's arms, you know, and then to her ultimate demise. And then the movie just descends into madness, which here's the thing. I get why you don't like this at first, because this purely after getting to know you as well as I do now, like this just isn't, your thing. Correct. You know, like you where it is squarely. Like I loved this movie from the first press screening. I saw it at because to me, this is the closest we've seen an American production get to actual Euro horror to where yeah. he like it's there's so much Mario Bava, Lamberto Bava, Dario Argento, especially like the scene where those the girls like turn on her and are stalking her like with the knives out through those red corridors and stuff like that's straight out of an old like Italian giallo. Like he's doing and it's it, which for me in particular being the Italian exploitation and horror like fiend that I am like I saw that on the big screen and was like oh my god I came in my pants like Alessandra Nivola and because also I think it's just again it's Reffin deploying his bag of influences with glee you know and and not being afraid of it and then it descends into surrealistic like madness to where like they eat this woman and then start vomiting her up later like eyeballs and shit and it's so disgusting well, I can definitely see that. And, and you know, I'm actually, you know, I like my Jallos too. Um, and I'm just saying, like, you don't sit through as many as I do. Oh, correct. Like, you, I, know, <laughs> you know me. Like, you know that on a, between the two of us, like, one of us is the monster fan. And, like, I have a a limited I – mean, I, I love the Jallos I've seen, but I'm also not seeking out everything. Um, but I think the end is really interesting with – so the Bella Heathcote character, who was always kind of the meanest to, um, she could be mean to me. Every time. <laughs> um, she, you know, she kind of starts to lose it because like they have now, they're getting their wish. Like they've eaten, they've eaten this girl, and I think you know, 
consumed it, her power. Like it's an Elizabeth Bathory thing. Full on. They, they've, they've gotten it. I mean, because I think that, again, you have um, you have Ruby's character who, I similar to her Diana character, seems to have spiritual powers. Like It seems like she's the one who's told them, here's this thing we can do. She has weird tattoos on her body. We see her naked or not wearing a shirt. And it seems to be very much, they're almost like totemic. A right, little, a little bit that she has powers. Vampiric. I always related it back to like old Romanian vampire tales and stuff, or like the original, like Vlad the Emperor, Elizabeth Bathory and stuff. Of like she, like, is pulling from almost like an Eastern European mm. sort of uh, mystical religion that tells her that you can consume another person's like life force if you eat their flesh. Because like, there's that amazing shot of Jenna Malone, like just bathing in her blood where you see nothing but her eyes while the other two are just an awesome, sexy, like Nick Reffin doing De Palma fashion. Like the two girls are showering together and washing each other off. Like it's hot, man. It's, it's awesome. And there's the ending though. You have, so, um, Bill Heathcote's character ends up cutting her own stomach after puking up an eyeball um, cause she kind of, they've, they've found the success they've been missing. Cause now the Desmond Harrington character is like, I want to shoot you guys and they've made it right. And the, the, the power transference has worked. She picks up the eyeball and then Abby Lee comes in, watches her kill herself, split herself open with fucking scissors and then eats the eyeball. Like I want every last bite, you know, I want all the power I can get. And she walks out you know, this, this final shot is, or it is just the, the, the hallway. She goes back to finish the, the, the photo shoot. And the feeling I get is like, it continues. Like the, nothing's going to change here. It's the monologue that Jenna Malone gives at the end of too old to die young. It's just the precursor to it is that it's like, this is all that's left. It's just nihilistic and narcissism, narcissistic insanity that will dominate our culture. It will be embraced. It will, it will be the prevailing line of thought. So the only thing that can save us is just finding almost like a comfort in pure nihilism and, and like thinking or even maybe enacting the eradication of these types of people. Yeah. Like it's, it's real fucked up bleak, like lines of, of philosophy running through these. But, I mean, it also has Refn doing two of his craziest set pieces, if we can call them that, is one, them going to a party and watching this, like, mannequin that's done up in almost, like, leather strap, like, almost like dominatrix, like, leather-bound, like, straps, and then levitating while this awesome Julian winding song. Like, yeah, it's his brother, right? Plays. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like, it's nothing. They're all just lit by individual strobe lights and shit. It's incredible to watch. Next to the scene from only uh, Tola Die Young, where he kills everyone uh, at the, the trailer, uh, trailer park, park slaughter. This is my favorite scene he's done. It's incredible. Because I mean, even in the theater, I was like, it was earlier in the film. I was like, oh my God, I'm so in, I'm so in, I'm so in. And I kind of lost him narratively later, but like, Actually, even after I didn't like that movie, I still downloaded that song immediately. I listened to it all the fucking time, like back in 2016. Yeah. That scene is so fucking awesome. The scene is her turning around and Jenna Malone so sweetly, who's in red, is like kind of, this is like kind of like, kind of like, isn't this great? Yeah. Kind of image, isn't this fun? I don't know what party they're fucking at where this is occurring, but it's, it's awesome. I would be into it too. Oh, it feels, it's the same world as Crash. Yeah, exactly. It feels like these behind these art, 
behind the scenes sect, like secret cabal of like people who exist in these these universes. But then you also have a Refn's necromantic moment where Jenna Malone (laughs) (laughs) spits in a corpse's mouth and then tongues it. Oh yeah, you want? I've never been turned on by uh, necrophilia so hard as as this. I've actually never seen necromantic. Yeah. I own both of them, so we can do that anytime, oh, Martin. God, um, but that'll be our next challenge. Since now we're done with Too Old to Die Young and the films of Nick Reffin, uh, we'll do the Necromantic double feature next. They're we, short, yeah. They're German though, so you're in for it. We got some happier stuff coming down the line for y'all, though. You know, at least happier for me. <laughs> Definitely happier for you, happier for everyone. But I hope that you guys have enjoyed this four-part miniseries on Too Old to Die Young. It means a lot to me, even if twelve of you actually listen to it. Um, I hope that it gets at least one or two people to to watch it for the first time because I truly think it's one of the crowning achievements of the early streaming area at our era and uh, really filmmaking as a whole since I've been alive. I I truly love it. But Martin, this has been great. Thanks for going on this journey. Always. We'll see you guys next time for some more weirdness on Secret Handshake.